I want you to imagine for a moment that you go to your church mailbox and you find a letter from the gospel preacher that you hold in the highest of esteem. And I want you to imagine opening up that letter and reading what that gospel preacher believes your congregation needs to know in order to do what is pleasing and acceptable to God, in order to be a better picture of his son and the church that he bought and paid for, Jesus Christ, that is. And just imagine all of the things that would kind of run through your mind, the, the personality of what you've been given and the opportunity to receive such a letter. And then I want you to stop for a moment and, and think about getting a letter from Jesus. I have many gospel preachers that I know and love, many of them here at the Memphis School of Preaching that trained me, that taught me in the way of, of Bible learning. And yet I can't tell you how much more of a special letter it would become if it was from Jesus. And we find that to be the case for the church at Ephesus. If you'll go with me to Revelation chapter 2, we're going to begin in verse 1 and go through verse 7. And we're going to study about a church in Ephesus that was absolutely on the brink of destruction. And if they didn't change, if they didn't get their life right, if they didn't turn back and start doing what they were supposed to be doing, they would 100% have their candlestick removed. And so as we look to the church at Ephesus this evening together, I want to first talk, at, talk about in the first point, knowledge of works, knowledge of works. You know, Jesus knew this church at Ephesus for what they had done, for what they had done. They could not bear those that were evil. Look with me at Revelation 2 and verses 1 and 2. The Bible says to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, I know your works. Stop right there and just stop and, and really think about this for a second. Jesus knew Ephesus. He knew who they were. He knew their works. He knew what they were involved in. He knew the ins and outs of all of the things that they were trying to accomplish as a church. And that is not just true for Ephesus. That is true for any member in any congregation. God knows what we're involved in doing. God knows what we're trying to do more of. God knows what we're doing a little bit less in that we are lacking in, so to speak. And we are trying to stop for a moment with Ephesus and think about those first four words. I know your works. And what a powerful statement that that is. But not only did Jesus know their works, he knew their labor, their patience, that they couldn't bear those who were evil, that they've tested those who say they are apostles and are not and found them to be liars. You know, we're told in the book of Titus chapter 1 and verses 9 through 16 that elders, one of the specific qualifications for an elder is that he has a responsibility to look out for the needs of the flock in protecting them from wolves in sheep's clothing. And we're told that there are these individuals in verse 11 of Titus chapter 1 whose mouths must be stopped, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, who teach things that they ought not to teach. And they have all of these problems, and it goes down to verse 16, and it says this. What do we do with them? 
What do we know about them? They profess to know God, but in works, they deny him. Ephesus is not the church, apparently, that could profess to know God, but in works they were lacking. And they even looked out for the people that were coming in and pretending to be apostles, pretending to have the truth and to have all of the information that they needed to give in order to teach the gospel. And they said, let's let's make sure that you really are an apostle. Let's make sure that you're really doing what's right. Think about this. How many churches do you know of, perhaps, that have stopped doing that? I know the last almost two years have been incredibly rough. And for a lot of churches, it might seem like such an immense struggle just to keep the doors open. But we cannot start to compromise on doctrine simply for numbers. Simply for numbers. You and I have a responsibility. The elders especially have a responsibility to look those out that are professing to be one thing, but in works are another. But not only, not only did they have the inability to bear that which was evil. They labored and did not become weary. Look at verse 3. You have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. You want to talk about being tired. I'm in the process of packing up a house right now. You want to know tired? You remember packing? You remember looking at stuff and realizing we didn't need that the day we bought it. We're not going to need it the day we pack it. And so the best place to put it is in a garbage can. But then you start to think about maybe a sentimental value that it has to you. And you convince yourself to possibly keep it. I'm blessed to say that my wife and I have done a pretty good job so far of just saying, nope, don't need it. Throw it in, throw it in the trash can. We can just get another one if we have to have that down the road. But right now, we don't need that. But the idea of purging and laboring constantly is an exhausting task. It's not just something that you wake up in the morning and and you feel refreshed after you've been packing boxes all night. You're tired. And you just kind of sit down in your chair, your couch, or whatever it may be, and, and you desire a respite. You desire an opportunity to say, I don't have anything else to prepare for. But they labored and they did not become weary. They labored and they continually, continually felt strong enough to keep moving forward and to keep going. You know, Jesus called their labors in a very specific way. We mentioned this a moment ago that they tested those that they did not believe to be an apostle. And and I I don't want to sugarcoat this. This took guts. This took guts. How, How many churches do you think out there maybe are concerned with the contribution, and in some cases have at times in the history years that have gone by, have decided to not preach on certain subjects, to not require certain things to be done that the biblical account requires simply to keep a check going into a plate once a week. For us to call out somebody is to risk more than just them leaving. How many times has a church split? How many times has a church split because of problems like that? 
How many times is a church split because the eldership decided we're not going to make a big deal about this situation? And people left because they said, well, we can't stomach it. Or how many times has it split because an eldership has stood firm and fast and said, you know what? This is wrong. We're not going to do it. And some people say, basically, well, I'll take my ball and I'll play elsewhere. I'll go somewhere else. Okay. Ephesus had to have guts to look at these apostles that were professing to be such and say, yeah, we're going we're gonna to test that out. We're going to figure out whether this is a legitimate thing or not. And when they found them out to be liars, they cast them out. And these are the same things that are told of elders. But of course, members are not exempt from looking for a wolf. Look, I'm not a shepherd. I, I really hope and pray that one day I could be blessed to be an elder in the Lord's church. That's a, a work that we should all desire. Those of us that can be qualified to fulfill that work and role. But right now, I'm not qualified to be an elder. But I can still look for the wolf. Too, too many of us have seemingly said that it all falls on the elders' shoulders alone, and yet Jesus praises the entire congregation of Ephesus for doing this. None of this was said specifically to the eldership. It was just said to the church at Ephesus. From the leadership to the membership. That's the goal. That's the expectation. And you and I find that they labored in the name of the Lord. They were applying what Paul had taught to the Corinthians, to be active in laboring in the Lord's kingdom, to be super abounding, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, in the work of the Lord, to be continually waking up and basically saying, what can I do, what can I say that will bring more ability to the kingdom of God? That's what Ephesus did. And everything seems to be going so well. And if you and I were to close the Bible right here and we were to just kind of say, you know what? What a wonderful church Ephesus is. What wonderful things that they're involved in doing and all of the things that they're doing. They are such a good example. We would miss the second point tonight, which is knowledge of weakness. See, we had knowledge of works and we have knowledge of weakness. Jesus says that he was set against them. I don't like to be in opposition with anyone. It's just not something I'm a huge fan of. I, I don't necessarily have been, I haven't been known, I should say, for picking a lot of fights growing up and getting into a lot of fist fights or anything of that nature. Opposition is not really that much fun. Jesus says that I'm set against you. I'm set against you for this specific reason. You ready? You have left your first love. That's what he says in Revelation 2, 4. Nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. And so what does this mean? Now, for a long time, for a long time, I used to look at that verse and, and just kind of have this mindset of, well, they left Christ. And Jesus is saying, if you don't get right church and let's go home, as you've probably sometimes heard the song sung, then you're not going to be in good standing with me because you've left me. But as I've gotten older and as I've studied it more, I, I realized something. It either means one of two things. Either they left Jesus or that they left their desire and love for doing the work of the Lord. 
And I've become more and more emboldened in the point that it, it can't be that they had left Christ for one specific reason. Jesus knew them. Jesus knew who they were. We're told in Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 that those that are in sin have been separated from the Lord. That process is still true because we're told on the day of judgment, we're going to be looked at by the, by the Lord and we're going to have either well done, good and faithful servant, or if you'll allow the paraphrase, I don't know who you are. And those people, Matthew 7, 21 through 23, are going to cry out and say, we, we've done many wonderful works in your name. And the response is, I don't know you. If Jesus knew Ephesus, it really can't be that they had completely left Christ. Then it seems to be that they have left their desire and love for doing the work. You know, when you and I have a career that we love doing, it doesn't feel like work, does it? That's tiring. There are nights and, and days where you go home and you're really, really exhausted. You're just worn out. But you still love your job because it's you're passionate about it. It's what you want to do. And then we've probably all had a, a moment in our lives where maybe we weren't in a job that we loved so much. I don't know what it might have been for you. I've been blessed that I've really only had a, a few different jobs, and I've been pleased to say that they've had all had bumps and bruises, but I've been overall pleased with every single one of them. I, I can't really remember a time where I would come home and dread going to work the next day on a regular basis. There were periods of time, as all jobs will have, well, there's some struggle, there's some difficulty, but I hear people sometimes talk about waking up in the morning, dreading the thought of having to go to work, dreading the thought of having to face the day. That's a hard thing to consider for me, having never really truly been in those shoes. But then you and I study about this church at Ephesus, and I think we can hit the nail on the head more. Because I have to be an admission to this just as much as you have to be. Haven't we all had a moment where we woke up on a Sunday morning and had that thought cross our mind? Maybe just not today. Maybe next week. Maybe, maybe the evening service. Maybe I'll make it to Bible class and, and then I'll go to the evening service or something tonight. Or maybe I'll, I'll catch the service and skip the class. I just don't really feel like my heart's in it today. And maybe it's not a problem for you on Sundays, but Wednesdays, middle of the week, you're exhausted, you're tired from work, you've got all of these things happening in your life and you're trying to deal with them and you think, oh, just, I don't know how I'm going to make it through church tonight. I don't know how I'm going to make it to the midweek Bible study and, and worship and have this moment. And then you go and, and almost always, what do we normally hear people say? Boy, that was a shot in the arm. I really needed that. I don't know the exact reason for Ephesus seemingly falling out of love for the work that they were to do. But it appears to be that they were simply going through the motions. Checking boxes instead of being fully in for the work and all in. If we don't buy in, if we're not intentional, what does it matter? 
anything in life that takes a group and a team effort, if you don't do your job, if you and I don't do what is required of us, the team fails. Church is no different. Being the church is no different. And Jesus says, you have left your first love. You have left me. And what he means by that is, you've left me in the sense of your desire and love and willingness to serve me. Not because you have to, not because, well, the Lord requires three songs and a prayer and then the invitation song with a, a scripture reading and a sermon and the Lord's Supper and then we can have our closing prayer and we can go home and finally turn football on or finally do this or do that or maybe just maybe we'll beat these people to the Mexican restaurant this week in order to have our lunch on time because the preacher didn't preach too long perhaps and we stop and never consider the fact that maybe just maybe we're just like Ephesus that we have left our love and desire because the preacher went 10 minutes longer or we had a restoration and that restoration took 10 more minutes of the service or the song leader that morning decided that we're going to sing all the verses of all the songs that ruins my day that means that my rest of the day is just completely out the window and ruined If we're not careful, we find ourselves in the same shoes as Ephesus, going to church, sitting down in a building, but not being the church. And Jesus gave them the only solution that would strengthen them. He says that they had fallen and needed to do the first works. Go back to the beginning. Go back to the very beginning. He says, Revelation 2, 5, Remember, therefore, where you have fallen from. Repent and do the first works, or else I'll come to you quickly, and I'm going to remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. They needed to do more than just be set against those that Jesus hates. He says, this you do have, verse 6, you know, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Go back to the beginning. I, I am a, a typical man's man, I guess you could say, when it comes to putting together furniture. Um, oftentimes, I open up the box. I get the furniture out. I try to do my job of putting it together. And then I realize, that doesn't look like it goes there. And I think, I'm going to have to do it, aren't I? I'm going to have to go get the manual. And I cannot tell you how many times that I have put together a desk or a bookshelf or something that requires a lot of screws or nails, and I open up the informational packet that I should have started with, and I have to take the whole thing apart and go back to the very beginning in order to put it in the right place. And nothing hurts more, nothing hurts your pride more than when you finished and you look at it and that little part of the wood that's supposed to face the back is facing the front. And the painted section is facing the back. Uh, I got to take that whole thing apart now just to fix that one thing. And yet, if I want the furniture to look like it looks on the picture, 
like I wanted it to look in my house or my room or wherever I might be, I have to go back to the start, read the directions and figure out what needed to be done that I messed up and fix it. That's what Jesus is telling them to do. I, I, I get it. You're already in it. You're already doing the work. You're going through the motions, but it's not enough. Go back. Start over. Fix it. And we find that Jesus then gives encouragement to those that overcome. He says, look, you, you need to overcome the world, first of all. Revelation 2.7, he who has ears, and let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. The path to eternal life is, is truly so simple. It's truly so simple. So why do so many of us miss it? Why do so many of us choose to go about it with our own directions, with our own problems, and just feel like we're going to figure it out somehow instead of trusting the God that made life and made the universe that's around us and knows every part of it and how it works? Overcome. Get on the right path. And anyone can have eternal life. If you do what is required of you and you obey the Bible. It's very simple. We follow Jesus with joy and zeal. Or we be in danger of having our lampstand removed. And before we move on to the majority of this lesson, which is really the application, I, I want to stop for a moment and go back up to verse number five, where Jesus says, you need to remember, repent and do your first works, or I will come quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. You know, there are a lot of people in the world that have championed the idea that once I am saved, I am always saved. I'm never in danger of being lost, of being wayward. And yet Jesus himself says to not one person, not the leadership, not the membership, just individually, the whole church, he says, get right. Or I will come and I will take your candlestick and I won't put it back until you repent. That warning means something. You know, I have an almost four-year-old son and a little girl on the way in March. And my three, almost four-year-old son, you want to talk about trying patience? Sometimes I'll give him a look and it will work, but most of the time... I have to give that parental threat of if you don't do this, this will happen. You know, the unfortunate thing, though, is because he's a toddler, because he thinks that he can run the house, oftentimes he refuses to listen to me. And so we're now in a battle of wills. And daddy's stubborn. And I have to prove to him 
that I'm in charge, that it's my house, that he's the child, I'm the father. And you will listen, you will obey, or you will be punished with what I promised. We have to be so careful to remember that our heart is always right with God, that we constantly have the mindset of giving ourselves the Bible and putting it before us and making sure that we're doing what's right, and of checking the congregation that's around us and making sure that if there's anything that needs to be corrected, that we get right in our churches. We change. We do what we're supposed to do. Now, as we begin to move to the application, I want us to consider some things here. Number one, Ephesus neglected what they've been taught. There is no argument that can be made that they weren't given what they needed. God gave them all that they needed. They had salvation. They had church family in addition to their own families. They had purpose. And how many people throw all that away for a cheap thrill? You know, oftentimes when we talk about cheap thrills, we immediately go to alcohol or to drugs or to, you know, cheating on one spouse and and being involved in these extramarital affairs or, or whatever it might be. But, you know, a cheap thrill can simply be serving self instead of serving God. Because it pleases you for a while. And then what? What do we do then? Oh, yes, for a while, you are 100% your own God. You can do whatever you want. There is nothing to worry about. But then what do you do? Because eventually, you're going to die. I'm going to die. And then what do we do? A cheap thrill is anything that keeps me from heaven. Because it's not lasting. And Ephesus had all that they could have ever needed. They'd been properly equipped, and they still left. Even being rich with all that God had done for them, they still decided, you know what, it's not for me. It's not for me. I'll do something different. You know, for too many people, God's grace and sacrifices and what he has done will never be enough. There's always more. You might remember the old story, and there's been so many different iterations of it, so forgive me if I kind of cross, you know, cross-thread what the story has been over the years, but I, I seem to remember when I was growing up, it was if you give a mouse a cookie, he'll want a glass of milk. And the story goes on and on with, he'll want a glass of milk, and after that glass of milk, he'll want to do this, and he'll want to do this. And the story gets all the way back to the end, and he'll say, you know what, I, I'd like a cookie. And he wants a glass of milk, too. And the cycle repeats. And if we cave, if we do everything that we think to do because it's going to make someone happy, we will never get out of it. If we're never content, if we're never able to look at God and say, God, you alone are enough, then we'll be just like that mouse that wants just one more thing and then we'll be content. That's not how this works. 
Ephesus neglected what they'd been taught. But it's not enough. It's not enough to go through the motions. And I I really fear that that's in some ways what this pandemic has taught a lot of our world to do when it comes to religion. I'm not talking about people who are legitimately concerned and need to stay away from getting the virus of any day. I would never say that. But do you and I know people that could be there and aren't? And when we ask them about it, they say, well, I, I'm, I'm just not comfortable because of COVID. And then you happen to be at the grocery store and you see them there and you think, well, they've got to have groceries to eat, right? And then you happen to be at the local restaurant and you see them there and you happen to catch them out at a, a recreational activity and you, and you see them there. And you finally start to kind of dawn onto the suspicion of they just don't want to come back. Because to them, they don't need to. Going through the motions will never be enough to save you or me. And if we don't have a legitimate, legitimate reason, then we're in danger. But the question becomes, why should we do the work of the church? It's a good question. I can't can't sit here and say that I have not been asking myself that question over the years at times. Why should it be me? Why should it be you? Why does someone do anything for the person they love? Why? Out of choice, obligation, expectation, or is it joy? You know, when I need to cook dinner, it it should not be a massive burden. When my wife needs to help me with something, it it should not be the end of the world and, and vice versa. And my wife and I, if you can see our text messages, a lot of our text messages are, are like this because I'm a night owl. I stay up late. My wife likes to go to bed early and get up early. And I, I usually go to bed late and get up early. But some of our text messages will read as follows. Honey, I'm going to bed, but I need you to do such and such for me in the morning when you leave for work. Would you mind doing that? Or she will text me and say, hey, I really do need the wash switched over to the dryer. Would you mind handling that before you go to bed tonight? I know you're going to be up. Sure, I can do that. Sometimes I will try to stay up even later to make sure it is completely dry before I go to bed. Because sometimes, you know, dryers don't dry all the way. And then she wakes up in the morning and the clothes aren't dry. And so I'll start the cycle again to make sure before I go up to bed. But that should never feel like a burden because I love her. And she loves me. You know what? What do we do when we look at Jesus as a burden, but our spouse as a joy? It's a problem. Doing the work of the church should not be a burden. You you and I need to wake up every morning overjoyed that we have another opportunity to serve, that this is the day that the Lord has made, and I will rejoice and be glad in it. I will do that, Psalm 118, 24. This is my opportunity to seize it. I may never get another chance. This may be all I ever have. And when our heads hit the pillow at night, 
can we say honestly that we've tried to make a positive impact in the kingdom or are we just checking boxes? Ephesus was just checking boxes. You know, Ephesus was doing the work, but they weren't living the work. And I, I want to point this out. Jesus gave them what many people have sometimes called a compliment sandwich or a criticism sandwich or feedback sandwich, depending on what you know it as. I looked up online. I just typed in compliment sandwich into Google and hit enter. And I found this following little excerpt on compliment sandwiches. You ready? The compliment sandwich, also called the feedback or criticism sandwich, beyond being one of the worst management techniques ever invented, was created as a way of trying to give somebody constructive criticism without making them feel bad. Uh, basically, it's where you give somebody a compliment, then you give them some critical feedback, and then you close with another compliment. For example, Bob, you are just so talented. Bob, if you're watching tonight, I'm not speaking to you specifically, but Bob, you are just so talented. You're so smart. You do such a good job. You might be the smartest person in the department, but your behavior on the team the past couple of weeks has been pretty bad. Your colleagues are starting to get pretty irritated with you because you're sarcastic and caustic and everything else. And you're just so bright, though. I just want everybody to appreciate how big that brain of yours really is. Okay. You know, from a management perspective, I, I can understand how that might alienate someone. Because in reality, a, a manager, from a company perspective, is not dealing with eternal salvation. I'm not comfortable saying Jesus made a mistake here because Jesus knew what he was doing. But he gives them a compliment sandwich here. He starts with a compliment. I know your works, your labor, your patience. You, you can't bear those who are evil. You've tested those. You've done all of these things, everything that you needed to do. You've preserved and have, have had, had patience. You've labored in my namesake and not become weary. And then he shifts to the complaint. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You've left your first love. Remember, therefore, where you've fallen from. Repent, go back, do the first works, or I will come and remove your candlestick. But, you know, you do have this going for you. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans like I hate. No one could point to Ephesus as some type of stagnant church. They were doing the work. Their issue, it seems, was with their heart. And therefore, we can conclude that going through the motions is worthless and not worth our time. If we're not truly in it, we need to be able to get in it. But next to last, our lampstand is still capable of being removed. And so you and I need to stop being complacent. I don't know if you're being complacent or not, but I, I just need to make sure that we all know this because that word complacent it means to show smug or uncritical satisfactions with oneself or one's achievements. Okay, so you and I heard the gospel and we obeyed it. So what? Honestly, I really want you to think about that for just a second. Fifteen years ago, I became a Christian. So what? Twenty-five years ago, I, I made my decision to get into local ministry. So what? What have we done to truly show our appreciation and understanding of the value the gospel has beyond looking back to the past? 
you know, the church needs to stop resting on its laurels. You know, well, 15 years ago, we we did this and our minister did this and our elders were doing this and, and we used to do this. So what? What can we do now to make an impact? There's got to be something. What we're doing tonight is something that was started to make an impact and look where it went. Look at all of the schools that are out there trying to strive to preach and teach other people about God's word and look at where they are. What are we doing now? What can be done so that in 15 years someone can say, wasn't it a blessing that this work was started? Look at how much good it has done for the membership. Look at how much good it's done for the body of Christ because everybody has benefited from this because someone decided that they were going to let their light shine. And so we must start getting involved. We need you. We need all of you. We need you to be leading in the areas that you can lead in the congregation. Serving in the areas that you can serve in the congregation. Doing every single thing that is possible. Going back to the basics. Because they don't fail. We need to be imitators of Paul as he imitates Christ. And finally, tonight, our lampstand is still capable of being restored. You know, maybe you're an individual that has been going through the motions more. The blessing of God is that he didn't say that Ephesus was definitely going to be removed no matter what. He didn't say to Ephesus, now, it doesn't really matter what you do. Once I remove you, that's it. Mm -mm. No. God doesn't want us to be lost. He gave Ephesus a chance to change, and he'll give us a chance to change too. He's willing to bring us back. There is not a time in history where man, is not re where man has repented and God has neglected him. It's not happened. Every time asked and answered prayers are offered. Every time prayers are asked, they're answered, I should say. And God is willing and able to forgive. A faithful God, full of mercy. We can't kid ourselves into think, thinking that God's going to just overlook our sins simply because he loves us. He loved Ephesus. And, you know, I, I wish that I could say, by way of true closing here, I wish that I could say that Ephesus got the memo and they changed, but history says another story. Ephesus is gone. They didn't change. And it appears that their lampstand was removed. Now what? The congregations where you and I meet, where we worship, where we labor, we are no different than Ephesus in that if we are not doing the work with the joy and zeal that is required, we will have our candlestick removed. And we're also not different from Ephesus in the wonderful blessing that our lampstand can be restored.
I'll close with this statement. The most beautiful thought about heaven is also the most horrible thought about hell. It's never at capacity. There's always room for more people. So what are we doing to determine to go to the place that God wants us to be instead of where Satan wants us? God bless you and thank you so much for giving me your attention tonight.